from 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Marnie Munoz. You're listening to the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, we talk about why the vaccine rollout looks so different in New York State prisons compared to outside of them. Also, the story of a steam station owned by Syracuse University and the lives it changed for better or for worse. And a behind-the-scenes look at SU seniors in their rush to produce short-staffed thesis films in a pandemic. It's Tuesday, May 5th, 2021. I actually started this in mid-March with the angle of nursing homes are congregate settings, you know, and all congregate settings were able to get the vaccine, and in prisons that wasn't the case. So about two weeks into that, the judge ordered that, you know, all incarcerated people were eligible for the vaccine immediately. So the angle then like switched. I uh, reached out to the Correctional Association of New York because they really have a lot of top-down insight into how prisons operate. And then I have sourcing inside prisons just with people who are incarcerated. And so I just kind of wanted to get the array of ideas and attitudes toward it because just like on the outside, it all depends on the person, how they feel about the vaccine, whether they want to get it, how much they trust it. And so... I kind of wanted to get both that top-down sort of knowledge from people who monitor New York prisons and also the people inside them. So it was just like calling around, just getting different attitudes and feelings toward the vaccine and the rollout. My name is Gabe Stern, and I'm the enterprise editor at The Daily Orange. And when they heard the news about being eligible for the vaccine, even though they were incarcerated, what was their reaction? What did they tell you? There was kind of an array of reactions. It was passed out, I believe, in forms, like in a memo to the incarcerated population. There's a lot of memos every day. So I don't think it was like for everybody like jumping for joy. Oh, they're, you know, eligible because a lot of people, A, the people administering it are the medical staffs, which records and interviews kind of show that staff and incarcerated people in many prisons, there's kind of a lack of trust between the two. Also, a lot of people in prison don't trust Doctors in general, I talked to a couple people who said they didn't trust doctors a lot on the outside. In New York and you know across the country, it's disproportionately Black and Latino incarcerated people inside prisons. And so talking in aggregate, you know, compared mostly to the white population, there's a lack of trust in just doctors and medical resources that the U.S. has in general. And then you put on top of that, in American prisons, medical experimentation dates back to the 1960s. Herbert Morales of the Correctional Association of New York, he was incarcerated for 33 years. He said, you know, whenever he got Tylenol, he'd check the package front and back just to make sure that it was Tylenol. So I don't think as eligibility expands on the outside, I feel like it's a little bit different than on the inside because there is mistrust in the vaccine, but in prisons, the mistrust can come from so many places on the inside, both immediate and historical, that just becoming, banning the eligibility is not the full picture. It's also getting people to trust it and how you communicate that to people on the inside. Could you give me a quick rundown from the beginning of the pandemic? Like you said, there's been a visible disparity between medical response inside of and outside of prisons. Why is that? Prisons are very, very tightly packed in New York and New York's prison population has been reduced by 12,700 individuals since January 2020. But that being said, there's still over 31,000 in there right now. It's impossible to social distance inside prisons, and that's what we've heard from a lot of people. For medical isolation, for quarantine, incarcerated people had to go to solitary confinement. You had, they had to be there for you know, 10, 14 days. 
the United Nations says solitary confinement for 15 days is a form of torture. So it's almost like medical isolation. They have to resort to punitive measures because there's no extra space. And as far as social distancing is concerned, it's impossible to keep people social distance just with the structure of a prison. Maybe there's sat every three seats in the mess hall, but on the way to the mess hall, they're all crowded in there. And then there's just been a lack of resources in general. So, you know, at Fishkill Correctional Facility, the Inmate Liaison Committee, which is a group of incarcerated people elected to air grievances with administration, they had gotten just a few disposable masks over a number of months. And the administration told them these masks can be worn till soiled. In the early months of the pandemic, incarcerated people had small cups of bleach to clean cells at a time. So just by expanding eligibility, there was a lack of trust in medical staff, but there was also a lack of consistent procedures in the first place. Tracy White said in the article, and it was a quote that kind of stuck out to me, he said, you know, it's like on paper, yeah, 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 we care, but then how it's practiced out, it doesn't make sense. So I think, and he got the vaccine, but the thing is he was hesitant about getting it. So we saw sort of as eligibility increases, that's not the full picture. Like you said, though, this is a disparity that's been there since before the pandemic. Yeah, prison experimentation in American prisons dates back to the 60s. And I think, again, there's kind of two layers to it. There's, you know, the history of experimentation, and then there's the immediate inconsistent procedures inside prisons of maybe social distancing in the mess hall, but not the rec yard, or using solitary confinement, quarantine incarcerated people. Sing Sing Correctional Facility, testing didn't start until most of the population in there thought that they had gotten it. Inmate Liaison Committee meeting minutes show, and this didn't make it in the story, but people had asked to get COVID tested before, but when they got the COVID test, the interest was lower because they, many of them thought they had achieved herd immunity. So they, they couldn't get tests as much of the population was getting sick. So it's like, it's the same staff and the same procedures that would lead to them getting the shot. And there's already that lack of trust. The 77% of people aged 65 plus and just over 70% people with comorbidities getting the shot, that's a nice rate. It's kind of almost mirrors that on the outside, but as the ages get lower, people from the Correctional Association of New York said that's kind of where the hesitancies will really, really start to play in because people may not see it as a matter of life and death. That sounds really different in some ways compared to life on the outside. But what did Tracy tell you about his experience being incarcerated during the pandemic? He tested positive and was held in a quarantine dorm. I talked to him a bit just about his experience in testing positive for COVID. And it was a really scary ordeal for him. And the procedures weren't completely clear to him. It appeared as though vehemently break any Department of Corrections rules, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't nervous or that he didn't get much reassurance while he was in that quarantine dorm. And so it was just, he also wants to start a cleaning business when he gets out. And so he's very, very, you know, tedious with how he keeps things in his dorm. And so when things are kind of so unpredictable and so all over the place, I think that erodes trust as well. For over the course of over a year now, tension rises and falls. That's what I've heard from a good amount of people inside. And so I think it's just kind of been like a whirlwind for a lot of people. So then Tracy's story isn't all that unique. In that one dorm, he was with about two dozen other people. That was just in one dorm of many. You know, there have been outbreaks at larger prisons with less distancing. I hear dorm life at universities compared a lot to prisons recently because people are talking about, oh, we're stuck in here. We can only go out at certain times. Like we're, we're forced to be with the same people day in and day out. But from what you're telling me, it sounds really different. Yeah, no, and I've seen headlines like people 
quarantined in like college dorms, like solitary confinement, that kind of just, it makes you cringe a little bit because it's, it's a lot different. Some people do compare it to that. And I think it's sort of just a throwaway analogy, you know, if people just kind of using it as a saying, but it's much different. Everybody's in there though, at the same time, same place, they're not really going anywhere. Why doesn't vaccine rollout work the same way logistically then as it does on the outside? Just getting resources inside. Things have always kind of been delayed, whether it's COVID tests or just other resources. And so with the vaccine rollout in particular, actually, they started off with Moderna vaccines, but then they switched to Johnson & Johnson. And then April 13th, so less than two weeks after they started like rolling out to the entire incarcerated population, Johnson & Johnson got recalled. And so that made it to a halt. There were 894 incarcerated people who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is less than 1 30th of the prison's population. And so with that, you kind of see how slow it really is, especially with the delays in Johnson & Johnson. It seems like they've kind of picked it up with the Moderna again, but there was a delay with Johnson & Johnson. There's just the delay in rollout in general. And just getting resources inside prisons, you can't just kind of like send anything in. So I'm not sure about how specifically they had the dosages like enter the prison or anything, but it is much slower. It's a much more tedious process. And with the Johnson & Johnson delayed, I mean, there were no vaccines going on for weeks at a time. So there's definitely that slow rollout as well. And of course, we have incarcerated people experiencing the direct impacts of this. But is anybody working from the inside or out administratively to change the way that this is? The short answer is not really. The Correctional Association of New York does monitoring visits. Herbert Morales visited Sullivan Correctional Facility and he talked with incarcerated people about just some of their concerns with the vaccine. And they had a lot of trust in him being formerly incarcerated. He said that he took the vaccine. And so him saying that rather than seeing it from a memo from the Department of Corrections in Albany, hearing him say that, I think helped a lot of people decide to take it. And as far as people on the outside, I haven't heard much about it. I think that some prisons handle it a little bit better than others, like Sing Sing Correctional Facility. They had a whole panel of leaders throughout the prison kind of answer questions about the vaccine in these town hall style like meetings. But there's no like widespread push to educate incarcerated people just about the vaccine and answer individual questions about it, because there are memos about what the vaccine does and the side effects of it. But I think the gap is really in personal face-to-face -face questions about individual situations. So I haven't seen a widespread push for that. For the people who are incarcerated, though, what's left? Sit tight and wait until they can get a vaccine. Sit tight and don't get the vaccine because they don't trust it. At this point, I honestly, vaccines aren't the only thing going on as well. And I think, you know, visitation resuming is really the biggest deal for people because, you know, they get to see their loved ones for the first time in months. So in all honesty, you know, it kind of comes and goes. What's next is I think the vaccine rollout will continue. But what's next on people's priority lists isn't necessarily the vaccine anymore. They became eligible. The judge's order was March 30th. I think they started rolling it out April 6th. It's almost a month now and, you know, things change, things kind of move on and the numbers I assume will be going up, but that doesn't mean it's as much on the top of people's radar as it was, even for people who are incarcerated. There are other things to worry about and to look forward to as well. And that's speaking for the people who I've talked to more recently. For what's next, I think it also just depends on the individual, what they prioritize. So for different people, that might mean different things. For a lot of people, I know that will be the vaccine. For a lot of people, I know that won't be the vaccines. Gabe Stern is the enterprise editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to his story. 
Inside vaccine efforts in New York prisons, eligibility expanded, concerns remain at dailyorange.com. Gabe, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. So it's not far from campus. I walked from campus. You can see it from the promenade. If you're walking down the promenade past Shine, past Newhouse, you see at the very end these like steam stacks. And I remember I was walking to the steam plant for the first time trying to find it. I remember thinking, is that it? Like, is that what those steam stacks are? Everyone sees those steam stacks and I don't think anyone knows that the university owns that building. So you get around there and then the neighborhood, Pioneer Homes, is like right there, like right surrounding the steam plant. I went under I-81, Wilson Park, right there on that corner. So I went around Wilson Park, you could see the steam plant, it's just right there. Right behind it is the railroad and it just takes up a decent amount of space. You have, I think it's Taylor Street or McBride Street, it's on that corner. And it's just two buildings, two separate plants, because one is older, then one was like newer a little bit and they're connected and then each one has two boilers. They're like five stories high and all the buildings at SU through miles and miles of underground piping. So that is, that is the steam plant right there. Sarah, what is a steam station doing in the middle of a Syracuse neighborhood? I mean, what does it do exactly? So that steam station has been there since 1926 and Like I said, it provides heating to all the buildings on SU's main campus, but it also provides heating to SUNY ESF, the Veterans Hospital, Krauss Hospital, and Upstate Medical's academic campus. And then it also provides cooling to 32 buildings. There's a cooling plant within that steam station that provides cooling to 32 buildings on SU's campus. And Pioneer Homes, the neighborhood right there, was built sort of around it in 1941. And then ID1 actually wasn't really built until 1959, as we know, because that was built right through that neighborhood. So the university owns it and it provides us with steam and it hasn't always been a very friendly neighbor because it used to burn coal as well, which caused so much more pollution in that neighborhood. And for hundreds of years, it hasn't always been the best presence in that neighborhood, but people have, and the steam station has sort of made efforts to attempt to rectify that relationship. And another question on my mind is, why does SU own it? Why does a private university need a steam station in the first place? That is a very good question, because that was something that I was wondering myself, that I was like, why does the university benefit from having its own steam station? Apparently, and I didn't really touch on this too much in my story, but in my interview with Nathan Pryor, he talked about it. Apparently, it's not that uncommon for a university to have its own steam station. He mentioned Cornell having one. He mentioned a few other universities and like how they function differently. And I was a little surprised that all these universities would have their own. But what it does for the university essentially is it saves them room in their buildings. So if we didn't have a steam station that was delivering heat to all these buildings through all this piping, if the university didn't have this steam station, then There would need to be more mechanical equipment in the buildings. So every building would need its own boiler, essentially, or way to heat itself. So it would take up a lot more space. So that's how the university benefits. It gives it more space in its buildings for, you know, programming or whatever else it needs. It doesn't need this, like, big space to heat the building. So did the steam station being there really change the neighborhood around it? I mean, 
Is life in this corner of Syracuse different than what it could be without the station, or is it just a building? See, it's tough because it's been there for so long. It's been there for almost 100 years. But when I spoke with David Rufus, that was kind of one of the questions that I asked him. And he did sort of say that without that building, he imagines that the neighborhood would have been better. There'd be more room for more homes, more small businesses. But also it's like, who can say? Because it's been around for so long. But having a steam station right there and having so many residents so concerned about it because... It's right there in the neighborhood and really they don't know what is going on there. And that's sort of the biggest takeaway that I got from interviewing people who've lived in that neighborhood, like former SU grads who said as kids they would play in Wilson Park and not really know what was going on there. And you see steam coming out of that stacks and you wonder what is coming out of those stacks? What is going into our neighborhood essentially? So while the steam plant has made efforts to become more environmentally friendly. It doesn't burn coal and it hasn't burned coal for a long time. It burns natural gas, which is a little cleaner. You know, without that steam station, I think the neighborhood would be very different. I mean, we don't really know what would be there. But also the university created a scholarship for students living right around there. And I spoke with some of those scholars who did say that they benefited greatly from the scholarship and they loved their experience. And one graduate even kind of said, you know, without that scholarship, I probably wouldn't have gone to SU. So not to say that the steam station is essentially a good thing, but there was good that came from it and that has been doing good in recent years. So so I know that you talked to a few SU graduates who grew up around McBride and Taylor Street. What was it like for them? Those two SU graduates, they grew up right around that area. And you know, one of the concerns that was actually outlined in the NYCLU report was that that area has particularly higher rates of asthma. And I spoke with Rydell Davis, who graduated, and he mentioned that, you know, he actually did have asthma growing up, so did most of his friends. And when he moved out of the neighborhood after college, he found that his asthma was getting better. But also I spoke with an environmental expert who said, like, you know, you can't necessarily pinpoint the cause of asthma, whether it be the pollution from the steam plant, whether it be IED-1, but it is something to note that a lot of children in that area did have asthma and ozone that's caused by the pollutants from the steam station, you know, that's not necessarily good for asthma. We know the EPA warns about ozone levels every day for people with asthma. And then Jamel Sharif, he mentioned that he used to pass by that building every day and Sometimes he thought it was empty. He didn't even know if it was a working building because it was just kind of there and no one knew anything about it. They don't tell anyone anything about it, essentially. And that's sort of one of the big reasons why residents are concerned, just because they don't really know what's going on in there. They don't know. They don't really know what's happening. And so for how long did the steam station go on to cause, like you said, I guess, environmental harm? Well, up until 1970, it was burning coal, and coal burning steam stations are a lot more harmful. They emit a lot more sulfur dioxide, sulfur oxide. That chemical compound is a lot more harmful to people's health, and it's much more detrimental. Now, because the steam station switched to natural gas, it emits very little of that harmful pollutant. It does emit more nitrogen oxides, which are linked to climate change, but they're not as harmful necessarily for human health. There's not any like immediate health effects. And they also emit volatile organic compounds, which are the same as what comes out of burning gasoline. So from cars, from tobacco smoke, and they're carcinogenic. 
it doesn't emit a whole lot, but again, it's the same stuff that's coming out of the cars on I-81 and if someone smokes. So that is a harmful pollutant, but can you really pinpoint it as the cause of all health problems in the neighborhood? Not necessarily because you couldn't really separate it from the pollutant that's coming from I-81 as well. So I would say from 1970 on is when the environmental impact of the steam station began to decrease, began to get a little better. It became less harmful and there's no possible way that the neighborhood would still be feeling the effects of that coal burning during all those years before 1970. And the steam station has made efforts to reduce its footprint a bit. It's under all these state regulations, Title V air permit. It can only emit so much and a certain type of emissions allowed. And New York State as a whole is moving towards trying to be cleaner. Like they're trying to get rid of even natural gas burning. What that will look like for the steam station, we don't know yet. But comparably to other steam stations out there that might still be burning coal, they're still out there. It is better. And the fact that it got rid of coal in 1970 is actually a pretty good thing. So since then, the environmental impact has gotten better. It's improved. And of course, the station itself, though, isn't the only source of pollution or physical division in the city. How do you think the station intersects with those other infrastructural issues in Syracuse? What's the combined impact? There's a lot of factors that could play into environmental air pollution, air quality, and ID1 is right there next to the steam station. It's emitting some also harmful pollutants, some of the same things that are coming out of the steam station. So I spoke with an environmental expert who also said the same thing, that it's very difficult to determine which one is causing more harm necessarily or stuff of that nature. But, you know, if there are health issues in the neighborhood, then it's difficult to say that those two things are the cause because there's a lot of factors. So you have the pollution from ID1, you have pollution from the steam plant, anything else going on in that neighborhood. In an NYCLU report that mentioned the steam station, you know, it has depressed land value. It has disproportionately affected Black residents and caused all sorts of health problems over its 100 years of existence, very similar to ID1. When I spoke with David Rufus, he's from the NYCLU, he almost feels like it's done more harm over its existence because it's been there so much longer. So it really has been like similar infrastructural problems in the city. It has been a detriment. It has not been good to one specific neighborhood, that it's the neighborhood it exists in. So what's changed in the community? You touched on this a bit before, but to to wrap it up then, what's changed in the community since the station was first built? I mean, has anything changed about SU's ownership or presence with the station? I mean, a lot has changed in terms of changes in ownership and operation. So there was a third party that used to be involved, Project Orange, and then after a bunch of lawsuits in like 2009, they parted ways, they split. And then in 2018, it shifted operations to this district energy provider from Canada, like N-Wave Energy. But aside from that, in terms of like its community impact, overall, it has improved. That's from a resident that I spoke with. That's from David from the NYCLU. You know, even though in its hundred years, it has been a focal point of controversy. It has caused harm, hurt, and danger. Those are his words. It has improved. Its relationship has improved. It's been a better neighbor for a lot of reasons. That's because, you know, the university has actually made an effort to work with the Syracuse Housing Authority and, you know, the steam station. They're involved in these conversations and they're willing to listen to residents. They created the scholarship that, while it doesn't rectify the impact that the steam station has had overall on the community, 
it has provided opportunities for higher education for kids living in that area. So the relationship has gotten better over the years and maybe just in recent years. And like I said, since switching from coal, the environmental impact has lessened. So, you know, it has gotten better. Is there a long way to go? Probably. And I mean, the big issue now is that there's still a lack of transparency, even though, you know, there isn't really a centralized place that residents are aware of where they can go and voice their concerns. So I think that's where they need to take it next, you know, and that's coming from residents too. And the two SU graduates I spoke with, you know, they really loved that scholarship, that opportunity they had. They want to see SU do more. They want to see them do more to help this local community that maybe in over this past century, they haven't always been great to. Sarah Alessandrini is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story at dailyorange.com. Sarah, thanks for stopping by. Of course. is a senior in VPA's film program. So she's graduating soon, but before she is, she had to complete a thesis project in which she wrote and then produced her own film called Where's Gloria? And what's Where's Gloria about? So Where's Gloria takes place over the span of one night and follows the story of a woman named Gloria who's taking care of her husband who has Alzheimer's. And she's considering whether or not it's right to keep him at home or to put him in a facility where he gets more care. And this is based off of Catherine's personal experience growing up watching her own grandfather live with Alzheimer's and her grandmother being his primary caretaker. Where is she filming this? So she filmed this off campus in an Airbnb with a crew of eight members, that's the limit for COVID regulations is that the crew sizes have to be smaller, maximum eight people and the two actors. And so what has it been like for her then to film in a pandemic? I think for her, storytelling is still what it is at its core, you know, telling the story that resonates with her and her personal life. But the only difference is that you know, with COVID, she said that they have to be more resourceful in terms of how they film. And with the crew size being smaller, people are doing more jobs than they usually would. So it's more of like a all hands on deck, whatever you can do to help sort of an effort. But besides that, she seemed really excited about her film and the content she was able to create, even though we are in a pandemic. I'm Sydney Bergen, and I'm the culture editor. And so... Is anybody else in the same situation as her in terms of filming? So all VPA seniors who are in the film program have to do a thesis project, so they all have to film their own movies or short films. And so I talked to a bunch of other students, including Haley Diaz, who are all creating different types of stories. So Haley is doing a documentary called When Our Neighborhood Burned, which discusses the 1992 Los Angeles riots and the impact that those had on her family as she's an L.A. local. And she took the first semester remotely from home and did all the interviews there with her family because she felt that it wasn't right to be filming something about home in Syracuse. So that's one example of a student doing a different project. And then Jack Thomas is another senior who did a sci-fi film about a housewife who realizes she's a robot 
of her husband's like ex-wife. So there's just like a whole range of creativity and different directions people have gone with the project, but they all have to complete the senior thesis project as a part of their graduation slash major. And so what would a typical final project look like for these majors in a non-pandemic world? Yeah, so usually, from my understanding, the crew sizes were much bigger, around 15 people. Obviously, there's no social distancing, no mask wearing, so it's less of a production in terms of making sure everyone's tested, making sure it's COVID safe. But besides that, it seems like a lot of people do shoot in Airbnbs so they can have a real home setting for their films. But I think that was something that was happening pre-COVID anyways. But definitely like bringing in more people to help. And also the filming process used to take place first semester. But because of the state of the world this year, they decided to move it to second semester, which gives students less time to edit. Because usually they would spend an entire second semester editing, but now they have to film and edit. So it seems like more of a time crunch. And so how are they dealing with it? I think all of them were so excited about their productions. And Thomas, Jack Thomas, was talking about how he had gone to Prague last spring to learn how to be on a real set. But then because of COVID, it got cut short before they even got the opportunity. So him and lots of students like were coming in without having like a professional set experience. So it kind of was a teach yourself as you go situation. But like he has this quote where he says, if we can do it, there's no way Hollywood won't be able to do it. So it's definitely possible. And then they're pushing those boundaries. Right. Are these, I guess, constraints also happening for bigger production companies? Is it, Or is it just university students? Oh, absolutely. I think that productions on like a more professional scale definitely have the opportunity to have more people on set. Like I know that Haley worked for the Rose Parade uh, during her time in LA this fall and they had a crew of over 100 people. So the whole like eight person rule isn't a universal thing. They're still able to have big crews and they have the financial capacity to like test everyone and set up systems that are correct and as we've seen movie we see movies come out during this time we've seen tv shows be filmed so obviously it's possible but it definitely requires more attention to detail and more focus on people being safe covid wise and something that was interesting with this, they also talked about how in the industry there's kind of become this new position called a covid production assistant where it's an entry position into the industry where people basically their only job is to make sure that everyone's wearing masks and everyone's been tested and sanitizing all the doors and all that stuff and, you know, being kind of the COVID police. So for now, you mentioned that students are filming sort of all over the place. What other spaces are students shooting their films at besides Syracuse? I would say majority are in Syracuse, while there are the rare occurrences like Haley, who shot in LA. But in contrast to the Airbnb concept, like Shelby Rogers, someone else I talked to, filmed outside in Syracuse, so definitely like a lot of different backdrops in the city people are using for their films. And I can imagine that people went outside of central New York as well. And for these students, where where does this process end? I mean, when they finish their projects, hopefully on time to be able to be submitted for their majors, what happens next? Do they sit in a Dropbox folder? Are they showed to the public? What's going to happen with these short films? 
So a lot of people mention that they want to submit their films to film festivals and competitions. It also just is a huge, I'm guessing, booster to their portfolio, something to show to potential employers of what they can do. And I doubt that these sit in their Dropbox. I'm sure that they're going to be shown to friends and families and colleagues and fellow students and professors and submitted into competitions where hopefully they win and I'm sure it's not the end for the films. But in the meantime, they have to keep working their way there, right? Yeah, exactly. Sydney Bergen is the culture editor for The Daily Orange. You can read and follow updates to her story, how four film students created senior theses while navigating the pandemic at thedailyorange.com. Sydney, thanks for coming in. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Special thank you to Gabe Stern, Sarah Alessandrini, and Sydney Bergen. Thanks executive producer Adam Garrity and podcast editor Mariah Hummiston. And to our producers Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlihy, and Catherine Ito. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.